Mark 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him. And went away. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have all authority in heaven and on earth, and that you, Lord, are the King. We confess, Father, that many times we don't like that. We'd rather make ourselves kings and queens and make our own decisions and choose, Lord, what we want. But Father, show us how much better it is to submit to you as the true King the best king, and leave our foolish ways behind. I thank you so much, Father, for every student here. I thank you so much for every youth staff here, Lord. I pray that you bless all of us with your word. Speak, Lord. We need you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple months before I turned four years old, my parents gave me a gift. In fact, two gifts. Two identical gifts. Now, they were small at first, and honestly kind of useless. Um, but they changed my life forever. <clears throat> what were those gifts? My younger brothers, Grant and Gregory. Now, at first, I didn't know what to do with them, right? They're kind of like, they cried, they pooped, they ate, and then cried some more, like, eh. I don't remember the early years too much, but I do remember the point where I realized that they were useful for some things. They were slower than me, they were smaller than me, but I could tell them to do stuff. <laughs> I mean, if you have an older sibling, you know what it's like to be bossed around, right? I mean, at least my younger siblings knew what it, like, what it was like to be bossed around. I told them to do this, don't do that, get that for me, fetch this, stop copying me, wash my dishes, be quiet, stop bothering me. 
my brother's actually like really patient, loving people, and they just kind of put it with me for a long time. But that's what they live through, right? Sometimes, though, I'd push them a little too far. <clears throat> I'd give them the command that I had no business giving. I'd be like, clean up your room, or go to bed, or go brush your teeth, right? <clears throat> and how'd they respond? They would say, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> and you know, they were right. They were right. I was an older brother. Sure, I was bigger. But I wasn't their mom. I wasn't their dad. Who was I to command them like they were my slaves? I wasn't in charge. I didn't have the authority. My brother's protest is actually very good and quite right. You're not the boss of me, Keith. Yeah, actually, I'm not the boss of me. But it also raises a really good question. If I'm not their boss, who is? If I'm not their boss, who is? To turn the question to you, who's your boss? Your coach? Your teacher? Your small group leader? Your mom? Your dad? Who has ultimate authority in your life? Who's in control? Authority means the right to rule, the power to command, the weight to demand obedience. Authority is what your teacher has when she says, class, your homework is due on Friday. Authority is what your mom has when she says, honey, you need to pick up all the stuff in your room. Authority is what your dad has when he says, son, you need to be kind to your sibling. But what kind of authority does Jesus have when he speaks? What kind of authority does Jesus have when he acts? It is, the, is it the authority of a rabbi, like just a Bible teacher who you know, studied a lot and therefore can speak with authority? Or is it the authority of someone who does a lot of good deeds just because he has compassion upon the weak and we want to listen to him? He's a role model. Or is it the authority of a guru who's learned you know, how to have a happy life and maybe has some tips for being more successful? What kind of authority does Jesus have? What kind of authority does Jesus have? Matthew 28, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, because it has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That pretty much settles it, right? If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth over all creation, it means he's the king. He has divine authority, almighty authority. Almighty meaning all-powerful authority. That means whatever he does, Whatever he says, he does, and he speaks as the king over all. And if that's true, it means you better listen. And so better I. Today we learn about Jew Jewish leaders who confront Jesus. It means they want to fight him. And they learn just what kind of authority Jesus has. How will they respond? Will they bow to him as the king, or will they reject him from being their lord? Our key idea for tonight is really simple. Jesus is king, not you. Jesus is king, not you. The sermon has five parts, and the first part is the confrontation. Look at verse 27 with me. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, these leaders had obviously heard about how yesterday... Jesus had cleared the temple, and they were mad. How dare this Galilean peasant, this nobody, clear their temple? Right. These are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are like the hotshots, the leaders of the whole entire nation. 
think of like the, somehow combining the Supreme Court of the United States plus the Senate of the United States plus like the smartest Bible professors you ever knew and smashing it into one group. Plus the House of Representatives. <clears throat> so that's basically what these people were. They're serious about a religion, serious about their Bibles, and this Jesus, this troublemaker, was their number one enemy. So when they see him coming in the temple again on Tuesday morning, kind of freak out, oh my gosh, right, he can't do this again. They run over to him, and before he can start flipping tables like last time, they question him. They question him. And their question, yeah, it's asking about authority, but to put it in our terms, they're basically saying, who do you think you are? flipping our tables and kicking people out of our temple. What gives you the right? Who gave you that authority? And implicit in their questions is actually two assumptions. Number one, you don't have authority to do this, Jesus. This is not your temple. You can't just waltz in here and do what you want. And the second assumption is, we, not you, are the leaders of Israel. You must answer to us. So what does Jesus do? Second, the counter. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, <clears throat> I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So he actually takes their question, turns it around, says, whoa, 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 whoa. You demand that I answer you? No, 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 no. That's not how this works. You, hold on. I'll ask you a question. And if you answer me, then and only then will I actually answer your question. And I love this, right? It's like very patient, it's very merciful, but it's really bold. Right? Remember, Jesus is God. This is his temple. He owns everything. They have no right to ask him a question or to demand that he answer to them. But he's like, all right, you want to ask me a question? Let me ask you a question first. And then maybe I'll answer your question. And listen to this question. Was the baptism of John, verse 30, from heaven or from men? Answer me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, in case you forgot who John was, let's go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, okay? All the way back to Mark chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a few things about this John, John the Baptist, right? He's the last prophet before Jesus. He was really weird. Remember, he wore a camel's hair as clothing. He had a leather belt. He ate locusts, which are kind of like crickets, for food and wild honey, right? Weird dude. His mom was Elizabeth. His dad was Zacharias. Um, he was actually related to Jesus in some way on his mom's side. And King Herod killed him. You guys sound familiar? You guys know who this guy is? Yeah. Right? Okay, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the promised messenger of God who would prepare the way of Yahweh to come. He would come before the Messiah. Now look at chapter 1, verse 7. He came preaching this saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So who's he talking about? In those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Now come back to Mark 12. Why would Jesus ask the Jewish leadership about John? I mean, shouldn't he try to like convince them that like he's actually God? You know, he'd show them his miracles and give them some sort of proof that, yeah, he really is the Messiah. 
That seems to make a lot more sense, right? I mean, it could have. But Jesus asks about the baptism of John because if you get John, then you will get Jesus. If you get John, you will get Jesus. Think of it this way. John, the messenger of God, was sent by God. And because he was sent by God, he spoke and he acted with the authority of God. He spoke and he acted with the authority of God. His entire ministry had one purpose, to prepare the way for the Lord Messiah. So when John baptizes Jesus, and the Father blesses the Son from heaven, and the Spirit anoints him, it signifies that not only John has the authority of God, but Jesus has the authority of God. That's the connection. Not only John had the authority of God, but Jesus had the authority of God, the authority from heaven to do the will of God. So, Jesus' question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, was actually a really easy one. When John was baptizing in the wilderness, everyone was talking about this guy. He was like the number one celebrity in Israel. The Jewish leadership probably even went to him and visited him themselves. So they knew the answer to the question. It must be from heaven. It must be from heaven. But what do they actually say? What was their answer? Third, the cowardice. Um, if you're playing a game, can you please turn it off? I can hear noises or something. Thanks. Look at verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you, did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Do you guys know what it's being, what it's being a pickle? You ever heard of that before? You're stuck between two spaces, right? Like in baseball, you can't go that way because there's someone there with the ball. You can't go that way because someone else, right? You're stuck between two places. And so these Jews are in a pickle. They say, okay, okay, if we give the right answer, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him then? And then they would appear like fools, right? They have to admit that they ignored John and therefore ignored God. They have to admit that they were ignoring the king of Israel, Jesus, and that they, the leaders of the nation, were just really bad leaders, correct, Frank. They'd have to have their pride humbled, their hearts humbled, their prestige shattered. So they couldn't do that. They were way too proud for that. But if they gave the wrong answer, John's baptism is from men, then all the people who really liked John, who really thought John was a prophet, would hate them and say, what? You're not the leader of Israel. How, how can you say that he's not really a prophet? He told you he's a prophet. And so they're stuck. Do you see the dilemma? Be humbled by Jesus on the one hand, or be humiliated by the nation on the other hand. And for such proud fools like themselves, it was a lose lose situation. So, they decided to play dumb. Verse 33. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. Like, this is a really lame answer, okay? <laughs> we do not know. <clears throat> this is like a hand stuck in a cookie jar moment. Let's say you've been chomping on cookies all morning that you weren't supposed to eat. You go in for just one more when your mom walks in the room and sees you about to pull that cookie out of the cookie jar. And then she asks you, did you eat the cookies I told you not to eat? Now, if you say yes, you're dead, right? Because you knew it was wrong. She told you literally this morning, don't eat the cookies for your brother's birthday party. You cannot eat these, okay? But if you say no, you're dead because there's crumbs all over you. There's chocolate on your face. I mean, your hand is in the cookie jar, for goodness sake. What do you do, right? What do you do? So you play dumb. I don't know. <laughs> did I eat the cookie? I don't know. 
terrible answer. But that's exactly what the Jewish leadership is doing. They don't want to admit their guilt. They don't want to be humiliated. And so they just act like they're stupid, which itself is kind of stupid. So Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They started the debate, and Jesus won. He showed them to be hypocrites. They didn't really care about Jesus' authority. They didn't really want to know what he was about. They probably had some idea he was no mere man. No mere man can do miracles. No mere man can raise the dead. But they didn't want to deal with him. They didn't really want to know the answers to the questions because they didn't like that his authority was superior to theirs. What about you? I mean, as far as I know, there's no leaders of the nation here, of Israel or the United States. But we are still prone to the same hypocritical heart. When your sin is exposed, what do you do? When you can't hide it, when your hand's in the cookie jar, you can't deny it, what do you do when your sin is exposed? Do you immediately confess it to God and then humbly seek forgiveness from the person you wronged, say your younger sister, your younger brother, or your parents? Do you run to them and say, brother, I pushed you in sinful anger. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me because Christ died for me? Or do you lie? Do you cover it up? You run away. You play dumb. You ignore it. You act like it never happened. Do you say, he started it? Or, yeah, yesterday you did the same thing to me. Or, I wouldn't have punched you if you hadn't pushed me first. Do you make excuses? Or do you confess? Do you submit to the authority of God, the only one who can really forgive your sin? Or do you run away from him as if he were the enemy? You see, sin is our great problem. I think some people have defined sin as not only the bad things that you do, but also the good things that you fail to do. And I think that's a fine definition. But I actually think this one is better. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God, particularly against the authority of God. God hates when sin is rebel against his authority. He hates it because sin insults him. Because it says that he is not a trustworthy God. When we sin, we say to him that you don't deserve to be the God and king over the whole world. In our sin, we take his blessings, we spit in his face, and then we insult his goodness. In our sin, if we could actually do it, we would murder the king on his throne, push off his dead body, and then set ourselves up as the new kings and new queens of our lives. That's what our sinful hearts want. We want God dead. And that heart of rebellion is exactly what Jesus confronts in his parable. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12 with me. And Jesus began to speak to them parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So a vineyard is just a fancy farm growing grapes, and the grapes are typically meant for creating wine. Wealthy first century landowners would often buy land and then rent out that land to farmers, here called tenants. And those farmers would pay rent, quote-unquote, by giving a percentage of the proceeds of the farm back to the landowner. It's kind of like when you go on vacation, right? Like you rent a car, and you can use someone else's car for a while, but you have to pay them money. You can't just like take the car for no reason. You have to pay the money. So verse 2. When the season came, the landowner sent a servant to the tenants to get from, some, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, these tenants are pretty terrible. The servants represent the landowner. And when the landowner sends these people to get, you know, what is rightfully his, they beat him, they beat him up, they kill him. I mean, over and over and over and over again. It's as many servants this landowner had. But look at verse 6. The landowner still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, this is actually one of the very few parables in the Bible where everything corresponds to something very specific. The landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The wicked tenants are the unbelieving Jews, particularly here, the Jewish leadership. The servants, the landowner's servants, are the prophets of God throughout the Old Testament. And the landowner's son is Christ, the Son of God. The point of the parable is this, to expose Israel's guilt For generations, God had been sending his servants the prophets, calling them to repentance, calling them to produce good fruits in his vineyard, calling them to love and to believe and to obey. But they refused. And they even tried to silence the messengers by killing them. When at last God sends his beloved son to them, what will they do? They'll kill him. Mark 8.31, when Jesus first predicts his crucifixion, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Exactly who we're talking about here. And actually, after Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts, there's a Christian named Stephen who says to these same exact Jews in Jerusalem, after Christ has already risen from the dead, he says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see, what the Jews wanted is they wanted God's blessing, but they didn't want his authority. They wanted God's stuff, his vineyard of Happiness and health, prosperity and wealth and peace without having to obey any of his commands. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And they expected God to just leave them alone. For such sin, what do you think they deserve? For stealing his vineyard and killing his servants and killing his son, what do you think these tenants deserve? Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. The fundamental problem of the Jewish leaders is that they refuse to bow to the authority of God. And for such rebellion, for the murder of God's prophets, and even his own son, God will destroy them. God will destroy them. But let's turn the question to us. What about you? If you're a sinner, and if you're just like the rest of us, and you are, you are a sinner, 
the primary, what is the primary, excuse me, if you are a sinner, here's the primary factor of your decision making. The number one question in your mind, the absolutely most dominant thought you think without even having to think it, is this. You think, what do I want? What do I want? You say to yourself, I want to wear this because it looks good. I want to go here because I like this food. I want to talk to that person because she makes me feel good. I don't want to be friends with that person because I don't like him. I want this because it feels good. I don't want to do that because it's just too hard. I want to go to church because I like people there. I don't want to go to church because I don't like the sermons. I want to read the Bible because it makes me feel better about myself. I don't want to read the Bible because it's so boring. And all these thoughts, which all of us have had, I'm sure, who is the authority? Who is making the decision here? It's you. Right? It's you. You're deciding what to do based on what you like, based on what you want. You are the one in your mind who's in charge. But that's not how this life works. You're not the king. You're not in charge. God is. God has spoken to us in his word all that we need to know about him. How to love him, how to obey him. And when God speaks, he's not merely making suggestions. You understand that? He's not giving good advice. When God commands, he's not merely asking, oh, you know, would you please just obey me? Just please, just this once. No, he's commanding with all the authority of God himself. He's the almighty king who made everything with just a word. The very first command that Jesus gives in the book of Mark is this. Repent and believe in the gospel. It comes with all the weight, all the power, all the volume of the Almighty King. And he says, you must repent and believe in this gospel. It's not good advice. It's not a choice. There are serious rewards to listening to this call and serious consequences for rejecting this King. Ultimately, there's only two paths in life. No matter what your career is, no matter what school you go to, no matter how old you, you die, there's only two paths in life. Either one, you will submit to Christ as King by believing his gospel, and thereby inherit all the blessings of being an adopted child of God. You'll receive all his grace, and you'll enter into heaven, with, and you'll experience everlasting joy with him. Or you'll disobey Christ and you, by rejecting his gospel, and you'll reap, therefore, the sorrow and the suffering and the pain of pursuing sin and worldliness. And at the end, you will finally be destroyed forever, eternally in hell. There are two paths in life. One, you submit to Christ as king, or you reject him as king. But God is still in control. This is God's world. This is his creation. He made us. He's in charge. He's the master. He's the Lord. There's nothing we can do to kick him off his throne. The only question is this. Will you submit to him, or will you be a rebel in his kingdom? Fifth, the cornerstone. Jesus caps off this parable with one last proclamation of judgment. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, the Jewish leaders, were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So we reread this passage, right? Psalm 118. And the point is this. The builders... The Jews rejected the stone, Christ. But that rejected stone became the chief cornerstone, became the most important stone of the whole building, the crown jewel over all. And this inversion, making the rejected stone 
the exalted stone, making the rejected and despised Christ, the exalted and glorified Christ, is the work of the Lord. It was his plan all the way from before the beginning. In this, Jesus again foreshadows his crucifixion and resurrection. The Jews crucified him because they hated him. Right? They hated him. They hated how he exposed their sin. They hated how he had authority over them. They hated how he had come back to claim his vineyard. And so they murdered him, threw him out of the city, and called him one cursed by God. But three days later, he rose again from the dead, to their shock, victorious, with a resurrection body, never to die again. And Jesus revealed his crucifixion, not as some mistake, some mess up in his plan, but actually all part of his plan. Because by this one death, he killed death. Because he died the death that all of his people should have died. He died in our place for our sins. Many a king has died for his subjects. In valor and strength, they go to the grave. But what kind of king has ever died for his enemies? What kind of king has ever laid down his life for those who wanted him dead? Only this king. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the best of the best. He's lord over all. If you're not a Christian, that means you're a rebel in his kingdom. But if you're not a Christian, this same gracious king extends his hand to you. Not to destroy you, but actually to forgive you and to give you mercy. He gives you this offer. Lay down your weapons. Leave behind your warfare. Forsake all the days of living for yourself, trying to be your own king. And instead, come to my kingdom. Become my son. Become my daughter. Become part of this good kingdom. If you do, he'll forgive your sins. He'll wipe away your war crimes. Your rebellion will count for nothing anymore because Christ paid it all. So if you're not a Christian, stop living for your rebellious kingdom and come to the true one. And if you are a Christian, rejoice that this is our king who loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's worship him because he is our king. Pray with me. Father, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This is your doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, Lord. This is the day that you have made, and Lord, how we rejoice in it. We thank you that by this one death, by Jesus' death, Lord, we're saved. We're saved. We're saved from being rebels in your kingdom. We're saved from the destruction that we so rightly deserve because Christ paid it all. We thank you, Lord, that you're a good king, that you love your adopted sons and daughters, that we are not your slaves, but we're beloved, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to see the goodness of your authority, the rightness of your commands, the perfection, Lord, of your power, and that we would submit to you in joy because of who you are, Lord, and what you've done for us. We praise you, our king. We ask you to reign forever and ever and that you receive all the glory. It's in Christ, our King's name we pray. Amen.